back, in the back, Paris, France. Stand up, everybody. Love everybody. See who you are. This is Loma's uh, Loma, Loma Vanders likes his granddaughters. Stand up. Thank you. For those of you who have grandsons who are still looking for no. <laughs> You know, we are studying uh, the book of Revelation, and it's very interesting as we go through this book. We've gone through six churches so far, and uh, hopefully as we've examined each one of these churches, we've seen something about our own church in them, uh, not only the, uh, the bad things, but also the good things. But Jesus, when he examines these churches, he usually says, there are good things about you that I like, and he commends them for that. And then he says, but there's some things that really I don't like. And I want to see those changed. And he says, if you don't change them, then he's going to basically take his hand off the church. And you'll have a building, but you won't have a living church. So today we come to the seventh of the churches that Jesus dictates a letter to. It's found in Revelation chapter 3. And if you take your Bible, turn there. Revelation chapter 3. And if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. And what I'm going to do today is basically what I do every week. I start at the passage at the beginning of the verse, and I go down and I finish the passage. We do what we call verse-by-verse -verse, uh, Bible study for our Sunday school class. And so today we come to the last of the seven churches that receives a dictated letter from the resurrected and exalted Jesus Christ. So look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. It says, And to the angel, which means to the messenger, of the church of the Laodiceans, write. And Jesus now identifies himself in three ways. These things says the Amen. When you hear somebody say Amen, that's a final word. Jesus has the final word. Word amen, when you say amen to a prayer, you are giving your seal of approval on that. Jesus has God's seal of approval, and he speaks God's final word. So he identifies himself as not an amen, but the amen. He is the last word. Then second of all, in verse 14, he identifies himself as the faithful and true witness. He is a witness to something, and what he observes, and he's observing churches now, is correct. It's accurate. So when he observes these churches, his observations are accurate. And they're right on the money. Oftentimes, we look at our church, and we view our church through rose-colored glasses. Or we have a false perception of our own spiritual condition. Because we're not objective. And we're touched by sin, and we cannot make a true observation. But Jesus says, He is the faithful and the true witness. And then finally, He says in verse 14, He is the beginning of creation, uh, the beginning of the creation of God. That means He's the first cause, He's the agent through which everything was made. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. The Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and He creates all things through Jesus Christ. So this is how He identifies Himself. And He's going to observe this church at Laodicea. Now what do we know about the church at Laodicea? First, 
first of all, we know that it was located about 40 miles uh, southeast of the Church of Philadelphia that we looked at last week. And it was named after the wife of Atalus, or Antioch II in the 3rd century B.C. So here's this ruler, a Syrian ruler named Antioch, and he has a wife, and her name is Laodicea. He says, you know something for your birthday? I'm not going to name a star after you. I'm going to name a city after you. So he names a city, Laodicea. And that's how this city gets its name. Now, there's three things that we know about this city that's very important. And if we don't deal with these three things, you will not understand any of the text. This text must be understood in light of its historical context. And the three things we know about Laodicea is, number one, it was a banking center for the Roman Empire. It had the equivalent of what we call Swiss bank accounts. <laughs> and so the richest people in the Roman Empire, when they were going to put their money somewhere, you know where they put it? In the banks that lay at the sea. This was the Swiss bank account. And because of that, this was a very, very wealthy city. And there were probably more rich people in Laodicea than anyone else in Asia Minor. Now the second thing, it was a center for breeding a special kind of sheep. There was, today, you know, we can do all kinds of genetic mutations and we can come up with all kinds of different vegetables and different animals. We cross-mix animals. They had a sheep that they bred, which was called the black sheep. And as a result, when they sheared the wool off that sheep, off came a shiny black wool that was equivalent to what we call today a mink coat. If you could get a coat or a garment made out of this black wool, you paid a lot of money for it, and only the rich could afford it. So everybody, it was a center of, uh, of the garment industry, the black woolen garment industry, top of the line. And then the third thing we know about this city, it was famous as a medical center. And what made it famous is that they had produced, they, like, they had like we call today drug companies that were doing a lot of experimentation. And they came up with an eye salve. It was made from a powder substance called the Phrygian powder, and it was mixed with an oil compound, and together it produced an eye salve that worked. And so people who had eye problems, today we go to a eye doctor and they will do some little procedure, but in those days you would use this Phrygian eye salve and it was produced right here in Laodicea. So this was a very rich city, it was a very self-satisfied city, self-contained, and what we've discovered about each one of these churches, seven churches so far, is that like city, like church, like city, like church. The church took on the characteristics of the city. Now it makes sense because people from the city went to the church. But we're not supposed to be conformed to the ways of the world. We're to be conformed to the ways of the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case in this particular church. So Jesus evaluates the church. And look what he says in verse 15. He says, I know your works. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Now that's what they're not. Based on their deeds, their actions, 
their works. He makes an evaluation. He says, I know something you're not. You're not cold, and you're not hot. So what does that leave? That leaves lukewarm. And that's their spiritual condition. He describes their spiritual condition as lukewarm. Now here is where most Bible teachers make their major mistake. They misinterpret what it means to be lukewarm. The typical interpretation is this. If you're hot, that means you're on fire for Jesus. Zealous Christianity, hot. Cold, that means you're dead. You're lost. You're unregenerate. Uh, you're an unbeliever. Cold, dead, hot, on fire for the Lord, and then most commentators say, and lukewarm means a church person, but you're a compromiser. You know, you're complacent. Now, that just can't be the explanation. And it's a wrong explanation. And I want to show you why. Look what Jesus says next. The end of verse 15. I wish you were what? Cold or hot. Now, if cold means lost, why in the world would Jesus wish they were lost? That doesn't make sense. He doesn't want anybody lost, does he? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So when it says, I wished you were cold or hot, I wish you were either on fire or you were lost. That doesn't make sense. So, what's the correct interpretation? That's where the background material comes in. Without understanding the history, you don't understand these concepts. So the first thing you need to understand is that Laodicea had a very inadequate water supply system. It had no fresh water itself. It had to pipe water in from a neighboring city. And this water piped in six miles away. By the time it reached Laodicea, it was no longer cold. It was now lukewarm. And it also picked up all the silt and sludge from these stone pipes through which it traveled to Laodicea. And by the time it reached the city, it was so insipid that all you could do is you'd take a drink and you'd spit it out. Did you ever drink uh, from a public fountain? You think, oh, I'm sorry, you know, you're, you're thirsty, it's hot outside, 95 degrees, and you see a fountain in the park. You say, oh, a water fountain! You go over there, you take a drink, you go, you'd rather not have a drink. So, that's what lukewarm was. Lukewarm was something that was good for nothing. Now, also, you need to understand that Laodicea was in a triangle of cities in the Lycus Valley. And the first city was Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was about six miles northwest of Laodicea. And it was the hot springs of Asia Minor. You know what hot springs are. That's where you have the spas. Uh, that's where you go to uh, sit in the mineral waters. And Hierapolis had these hot springs with these mineral waters. And people would come from miles around to sit in the, 
to experience the healing properties of these hot springs. So if you wanted to relax and you were rich, where would you go? You'd go to Hot Springs. And you would relax and you'd sit in, maybe you were sick and the doctor would say, you need to sit in the mineral waters for the healing properties. And so that's what people would do. Now the other city in the triangle was Colossae. And we know about that because we have a book of Colossians. And Colossians was located 10 miles southwest of Laodicea. And it was known for its cold springs. It had the freshest, coldest drinking water that you could imagine. And people would come from miles around to drink this crystal clear spring water. Cold water. Uh, where I grew up in Baltimore, about two miles from my house, there was a a road, and it was called Cold Spring Lane. And people had no idea why it was called Cold Spring Lane, but you know why, don't you? Because back in the 1800s, guess what there was there? There was a cold spring, and that's where people would come, and they would bring their containers, and they would go down into the cold spring, and that's how they got their water. But as the area developed, people forgot about the cold spring, because now they had tap water. And so this was known for it's cold water, which was, by the way, was a rarity because this was a volcanic region where there were earthquakes and volcanoes. Very hot. So to have cold water was, uh, you know, a delicacy in a sense. And so that's where people would go to get refreshed. To get their thirst quenched. So it all makes sense. Hot water to relax and heal the body. That's good. Would you say that's good? Cold water to refresh the thirst. That's good, isn't it? Okay. And this is what the church is supposed to do. The church is supposed to be a healing center, a place where people are affirmed, and it's supposed to be a place where people can be refreshed. Healing and refreshment. So Jesus says in verse 15, I know your works. You're not cold. You don't offer any refreshment. You're not hot. No healing going on. Healing for the body or soul. I wish you were cold. I wish you were hot. Verse 16, so then because you are lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You're good for nothing. You make me sick. Now, this is the only church that Jesus doesn't say one good thing about. Every other church, he says at least one good thing about. He says nothing good about this particular church. Now, you see how important it is to understand the historical background. Because when we have these passages, they are written in the context of the geography and the history and the, the social situation. So here's a church that's barren. Now, by the way, it's rich, isn't it? Yes. But it's barren and it's good for nothing. So when Jesus says, I will spit you or vomit you out of my mouth, this is a statement of judgment. The only thing you're good for is to be cast 
out. It's a statement of judgment. So he's passing judgment upon this church. Now look what he says in verse 17. Look at their evaluation. That's how Jesus evaluates. He's the true witness. He gives a correct evaluation. Look how they evaluate themselves. Verse 17. Because you say, I am rich. I am rich. Become wealthy. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and are in need of nothing. Notice that. You are rich and become wealthy and in need of nothing. That is the way they characterize themselves. You do not know that you are wretched and miserable. <clears throat> now notice that. How do they see themselves? We don't need anything. We're rich and wealthy. We don't need anything. And Jesus said, oh, uh, wrong evaluation. Here's what you are. And he characterized them by their nature. Number one, you are wretched. <laughs> That's not a nice word. Is it? Uh, the word means callous. You're hard-hearted. Hard-hearted toward whom? Toward the people who aren't rich. Toward the poor people. You're callous. You don't see people's needs. You only see your, yourself satisfied. You can't see anything beyond your little sphere. And then he says, not only are you wretched, you're miserable. You are to be pitied. Now, if you ask the church how they viewed themselves, they would say, of all the churches in the region, we're the ones to be admired the most. And he says, no, you are to be pitied. <clears throat> so, we're going to classify these people as church members who are up and outers. Okay? They think they're in good shape, but they really are not. Now, the next three words in verse 17 give us the specifics. He says, first of all, you are poor. Now, what kind of city do they live in? A banking city, a wealthy city where the Swiss banks were. He says, but in reality, guess what you are? Poor. How do they see themselves as what? Rich. How are they really in Jesus' eyes? Poor. Look at the next thing in verse 17. You are blind. What's the city known for? It's I said. Healing of the eyes to make you see. What does he say you are? Blind. You're not seeing things clearly at all. And then the third thing he says in verse 17, right at the end, and you are naked. This is the city that produces the most famous black wool that keeps people warm and is very expensive. And he says, guess what you really are? You are naked. So if you want to know the definition of lukewarm, it is wretched, miserable, poor, Spiritually poor, blind, spiritually blind, and absolutely naked. So now Jesus gives them some advice. And look at the advice that he offers. He says in verse 17, verse 18, I counsel you, here's my advice to you, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, 
that the shame of your nakedness not, may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that it may see. So now notice what he does. He gives them instructions, and the instructions in verse 18 are to buy. You see that? They need to buy something. Okay? Where are they to get this product? From me. You see that? They're not to turn to the world for their resources. They are to find their resources in Jesus Christ. What are they to buy? They are to buy, look, gold. <clears throat> refined in the fire. This is talking about becoming rich through trials and testings. This is a church that's at ease. They wouldn't know what a trial is all about. When they, whatever they need, they can just get. He says, you got a wrong concept of riches. In God's eyes, riches come through trials. You have to go through the fire. See? Gold refined by the fire. And then there's a second thing he says, right in the middle of verse 18. He wants them to buy from him white garments. Not black wool garments. That's what they're known for. If this person traveled to another city and they said, where are you from? They said, oh, we're from White Abyssinia. You know, we're that city that sells those expensive black garments. He said, you know what you need? You need to buy something from me. You need to buy white garments. Now, seven times in the book of Revelation, the white garments or white linen is described as the righteousness of the saints. You need to be righteous in God's eyes. You need to have His kind of righteousness. You need to be clothed in different kind of garments. Adam and Eve clothed themselves when they sinned in garments of their own making. God stripped that garment and He said, you need these garments. You need to be clothed in the righteousness of the Lamb. And he didn't take a black wool lamb, but he took a white wool lamb and he clothed them symbolic of righteousness, God's righteousness. And he says, that's what you need to be clothed in. And then at the end of verse 18, he says, and anoint your eyes with eye salve. Not Phrygian powder in the oil compound like you make there at the medical center. I'm talking about an eye salve that only Christ can get. You know, the kind where the scales fall from your eyes and suddenly you can see clearly because the gospel's penetrated and God reveals himself to you. That's the kind of anointing you need. This is an anointing that comes not through typical eye salve, but Holy Spirit eye salve. Uh, so he tells them they need these three things. So where do they get these three things? They get them from Jesus. How do they get them? They buy them. But, it's something that can't be bought with money. It costs. And you have to buy it. But you can't buy it with money. So how do you get it? Well, I think this is probably a reference back to Isaiah 55. And if you have a Put note, you might see that, Isaiah 55 and verse 1. So turn back there. Take a look at this. If you'll find this to be very interesting. Isaiah 55 and verse 1. 
here's God's invitation to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, by the way, is at this point is very similar to the church at Laodicea. They've abandoned God. They've gotten involved with idolatry. They're a mess. And God says in Isaiah 55 and verse 1, Ho! I like that word, ho. That's a shortened for the word behold. Look! Let me get your attention. Everyone who thirsts, see if this doesn't sound a little familiar, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and what? Buy and eat. This is a purchase that's not made with money. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and wages that does not satisfy? That's what this church has been doing. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight in its abundance. And here's how you do it. Incline your ear and what? Come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. And so what he's saying when he says buy, he's saying come to me and uh, enter into this covenant. He calls it a covenant of David. Enter into this relationship, this covenant relationship with me. Now, it's going to cost you something to be in the relationship. It might cost you your life. It costs you everything you have. Because there's a major cost involved when you come to Christ and you're clothed in His righteousness and He opens your eyes and the gospel takes root because from that point on, it's no longer compromising with the culture and society and being known like city, like church. It's now being known as like kingdom, like church. And to do that is going to cost them, many of these people, their lives. They're going to die for their faith. That's the cost involved. So Jesus is exhorting them basically to get saved, to enter into this covenant relationship with Him. Now go back to Revelation chapter 3, and we'll look at verse 19, because now... He gives them a rebuke. He gives, by the way, in verse 18, I'm just looking right there, there's a, there's a purpose statement here. Do you see those that's? Look at those words that in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Why? That, here's the purpose, here's the reason, that you might be rich, meaning in God's eyes, according to his definition. And white garments, for what purpose? that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, that your sins are covered. You may be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that your sins are covered. That's the reason. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, one, that you may see. If you may see things clear, see your own condition, understand the gospel. See, there's those three that's. Give a purpose statement. And now, he rebukes them. And look what he says in verse 19. Here's the motive behind his rebuke. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. 
Now, Christ has pronounced the judgment, hasn't he? He said, I spew you out of my mouth. You're lukewarm. That's the judgment. And uh, that's going to come. And so he gives them this rebuke. He tells them, he tells them the truth. You know why he tells them the truth? What's the motive behind it in verse 19? Because he loves us. He loves us. That's why he does that. So he rebukes us out of love and out of concern. Uh, and then he gives them some instruction. And by the way, these are people who are baptized church members. These are people who had a big, good beginning. Somewhere along the line, the gospel got to them, didn't it? They became professing believers. They submitted to baptize, baptism. They joined this church. But guess what? Something's happened. And maybe this is a second generation of church members. And they're not like their parents. And they're not real Christians, but, one, but they've been baptized. So look what he does. He says, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Be earnest. Earnest, be zealous, means uh, do it now. Repent. Uh, while there's still time. Before I spit you out of my mouth. You need to repent before that happens, before the judgment comes. And I'm telling you about this judgment, not because I hate you, it's because I love you. It's to motivate you to repent. And so he calls them to make an about face and change. And then he gives an invitation. And this is a very interesting invitation. This is another verse. It's one of those that are misunderstood. Look what he says. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He says, behold. Tries to get their attention. Why does he have to get these people's attention? Because they're lukewarm. They're not even listening. These are blinded people. He says, I'm standing at the door. I'm continually standing at the door and I'm continually knocking. What door is he standing at? It's not the door of the heart. What's the context? It's the door of the what? The door of the church. Probably a church that meets in people's homes because that's how they did it in those days. So here he is. He's taking a look at the church. He's on the outside of this church. And he's looking in. And he's knocking. And he's trying to get in. Now this is a picture of something. Two things come to mind when we see this verse. First of all, is the picture of the Roman Roman officials coming from Rome, Rome, Italy, coming down into this region for some reason, maybe to put their money in the bank or whatever, and basically coming in and just taking over someone's house, the rich person's house. Uh, this is what armies do. You know what happens when we, when we invaded Iraq? Guess what we did? Took over. Or, the palace, didn't we? Just took her right over. We didn't say, hey, can we come? Anybody, huh? Can we come in and make this our base of operation? So what armies do. That's not what Rome did. When Rome sent its representatives to a city like that, guess what they did? Marched right in, took over. Jesus said, I'm not coercing you. Guess what I'm doing? I'm knocking. Just the opposite of the way Rome operates. The way the government operates. But there's another picture here that we get from this, and this is the picture of sojourners, travelers, coming to the gates of the city. And Laodicea was a crossroads city, and it had four major gates, or 
entrances to that city that were closed at night and the gates were locked. You didn't want people coming in at night robbing the city. Invaders. And a lonely traveler would be traveling maybe with a caravan and uh, was thirsty and hungry, needed a place to stay, and guess what? They would knock at the city gate trying to get in to get a good night's sleep. Uh, Jesus pictures himself as this stranger to this church. Uh, knocking, trying to get in. Uh, trying to be helped. Trying to get a, a drink. Trying to get a bed. Trying to get a, a, a good meal. He presents himself in that way. And for the most part, the church ignores those kinds of requests. That, now, the church isn't concerned about the poor people, is it? Not this church. It's only concerned about themselves. Remember what Jesus said, look, when I was thirsty, you didn't give me a drink. Uh, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. Remember that? And they said, well, Lord, when did we ever see that? And he said, what? When you didn't do it to the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it to me. This is a church that has not really taken care of people except themselves. And uh, Jesus pictures himself as someone trying to get in. And he says this, he says, If anyone, in verse 20, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him, and that means in his midst, and I will dine with him, and he will dine with me. This is the response Christ expects. He, re he expects that church to answer this knock and open the door to him. And when he says, I will come in and I will dine with him, that word dine is the word which means supper. And in the church context, you know what kind of supper it was? The Lord's Supper. Because the church would get together once a week and they'd have a great big meal. And they did it in the name of Jesus. They would take the bread and they would break it and they would drink the wine and have a great big meal in between. And they called it the Lord's Supper. There's only one problem. Guess who wasn't there? The Lord wasn't there. He's trying to get in to his supper. He wants to be there and have fellowship with them. And they've kept him out. So he says, if anyone will open that door, uh, I will come in and I will sup with him and he will sup with me and, uh, uh, and he's probably saying I've been trying to get in for years and you haven't let me in now you've gone through the motions now you've been eating the meal but guess what but you haven't taken care of the poor people if you haven't taken care of them you haven't taken care of me but I wasn't in your midst sounds a lot like the church of Corinth doesn't it rich people would come and they'd eat the meal and eat up all the food and then finally the poor people would arrive and guess what the rich people were going like this and many of them were drunk and the poor people didn't get a morsel of food or even a sip. All they were concerned was about themselves and Paul said, for this reason some of you were sick, weak and some of you have even died. Well this church is in that condition and it's pretty dead. So Jesus said, look, I'm trying to get in and you need to let me in. And he says, if anyone, now this message is to the whole church, but look what he says in verse 21. 
He makes it very personal. If there's just one person there who will hear my voice and open the door, at least when he has the supper, I'll be in his midst and we will have this fellowship. And then he makes this promise regarding the future. To him that overcomes, that's the person who's repented, the person who's entered into this contract, this covenant relationship with Christ, no matter what the cost, even the death, even the cost of death, you've not given in, you've not compromised. That's what an overcomer is. The person who's faithful to the end, even to the point of death, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. We will rule with Christ and His kingdom at the resurrection, even if we're put to death for our faithfulness. We will be raised and we will rule with Christ and His kingdom. I'll grant you to sit with me on my throne, even as I also, what? Overcame? How did He overcome? By dying and God raising Him from the dead. And I sat down, past tense, with my Father on His throne. So, when Christ died, He was raised, He ascended into heaven, and He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty on His throne. So where's Christ today? Where is He seated? He's seated on a throne, isn't He? That means He's reigning in some way. That means the kingdom is here in some way. He's reigning as King. And guess what He does? He promises that if we're faithful to the end, even in death, we too will be raised, and we will rule with Him on His throne in the kingdom. That's the reward that he has for us. What a turnabout. One moment he says, I'll spit you out of my mouth, and the next moment he says, I'll sit with you on the throne. From spit to sit. <laughs> Just like that. But guess what? There's one, one requirement. You have to repent. You have to repent. You have to enter into this covenant relationship with Christ that could cost you your life. By the way, that throne, next chapter, chapter 4, look at verse 2. Throne set in heaven. One sat on a throne. Do you see that? Chapter 4, around the throne. And then thrones. Chapter uh, Verse 5. On the th from the throne. Verse 6. Before the throne. Do you see that? How many thrones do you have there? Into verse 9. Sits on the throne. Verse 10. Him that sits on the throne. See that? Look at the end of verse 10. Crowns before a throne. What do you think chapter 4 is about? It's about a throne. And what you're going to see is there's going to be a shift from chapter 3 to chapter 4. It's going to shift from earth and looking at the situation on earth as it is in these churches and suddenly it's going to shift and we're going to see what Christ is doing right now. Now he sits on the throne, and we're going to get things from a, uh, from a heavenly perspective. So he ends chapter 3 with these words, He that has an ear, and not everybody does, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so this is a message for all of us, a message for all ages, it's a message to those seven churches. If we have an ear, we need to listen and obey and do what the Spirit tells us to do. So... Here is a rich church. 
Just think of the richest city in America and a church where the most prominent people in that city go. That's Laodicea. And yet, Jesus says, in his evaluation, is that they're poor. Because they do their own thing. They do whatever money can buy. They do their own thing. They're self-satisfied, but they have kept others out. They've kept poor people out. As a result, they've kept Christ out. And now Christ says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. It's a call to repent. Next week, we'll pick up on chapter 4, and we'll try to finish that chapter. Father, we thank you for a very important passage of Scripture. A passage that is so rich with meaning that we need to examine ourselves and say, do we as a church, as a Sunday school class, as a people, do we heal people? Do Are we like a bomb of Gilead for the sick and the lonely, where people can flee and find healing for their souls? Lord, are we a church that refreshes people? Are we hot? Are we cold? Or Lord, Lord, are we lukewarm? Good for nothing. Oh Lord, help us to examine this passage in the light of our situation. And those of us who have ears, let us hear what the Spirit says to the church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.